Hello and welcome to Can't Find My Way Home, the podcast where expats from around the globe talk about the music and art scene in their adopted home. I'm your host, Craig. In this episode of Can't Find My Way Home, I was joined by Robert Castelli. Robert is a native of Osinning, New York, Born into a family of drummers, a grandfather, two uncles, and his father, Robert learned the basics from his father, who, along with his uncle, were lifetime members of the NYC Musicians' Union. We get into the finer aspects of Robert's expat journey, and how it's taken him first to Austria, and now on to Barcelona, where he's called home for the last six years. Robert and I discuss his family roots in the music business, what's it like being a drummer who writes music for the band, how he got into jazz in the first place, his musical influences, the modern economic model for musicians today, and how the perception of music has changed, as well as apocryphal tales of Frank Zappa. We get a bit grammatical, pre- and post-Covid plans, and Robert tells us how working as an investment broker in New York enabled him to pursue his career in music. In the top five, we have Iggy Pop, singing drummers and the complexities thereof, Medeski Martin and Wood, not being fans of Ginger Baker or Keith Moon, in a manner of speaking, and late night karaoke in NYC, and why all roads lead to Miles Davis. All this and we ponder, just what are the three things people don't have anymore? Let's get right to it, Robert Castelli. I was born in Ossining, New York, which is 30 miles from New York City. And like most people do in near a big city, when you reach a certain age, you move into the city. But I, during that time, I had met an Austrian guitar player at a party. I had a, I had a girlfriend who was in the photography business, and it was photography and video. And some of the stuff she did was pretty high-end, like Coca-Cola commercials or MTV videos or whatever. And she had a friend who was a designer. Her boyfriend was a photographer, but he was a rich guy. His father bought him a loft in Hell's Kitchen. It's a, it was gigantic, huge. This guy used to make beer in his own flat in New York. Nobody did that back in this is the 90s, you know? So they had these two friends. Uh, we thought they were a couple. One was 25 and one was 52. The woman was 52, the guy was 25, and we thought they were a couple. And they used to have a birthday party every year because they had the same birthday. But they weren't a couple. They were just friends. So at one of their parties, they catered the party because he's a rich guy. And the catering company was there. So at the end of the night, because I was a, a friend, I was one of the last people to leave. But the caterers had to stay. So there was this kind of good-looking woman washing dishes. So I started to go up and talk to her. And then right next to her was this guy with his hands in his pockets like he's about ready to punch me. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was an Austrian guy. And he said, oh, that's my wife. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So about 15 minutes later, walking around to different people, I heard him speaking and I heard that he, I could tell he was a musician. So we exchanged phone numbers and we invited each other to each other's gigs for like two years, but we could never, never meet like two years. Uh, then finally, I just get a call out of the blue. Listen, man, I'm putting a new project together and, um, you know, I'm looking for people and you know, I want to see if you want to do it. You know, we've never played before. So if it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, and I just like that approach that there was no, like, you have to do it or you don't have to do it. So the long and the short of it is I went to Austria with him on a tour and uh, came back 
And if the following year I went to Austria to do, I should just say, reconnaissance to try to get, to get gigs and stuff, you know, and learn, mm. you know, a network. And, and, and holiday. That was June through September. I, I took my flight going out of New York in June and coming back in September. And at the time I was, I had an investment license so I could, I could handle people's money. As, so I remember, I, I'm trying, sorry not to make this too long, but it's, it's no, no, tell you I'm, how I, I, I'm all ears, man. Yeah, you know, I go for I'm it. from a really middle-class family. My father was a blind, almost blind drummer. So we didn't have any money. So the first thing that I wanted to do was get out of the situation of not having any money. So I became an investment broker. And why I did that was it's a commission job that can be very stressful. But if you make money, no one can tell you you got to come in the office tomorrow. You got to sweep the floor. You got to do this. I'm like, it's hey, I put, numbers, right? I put numbers on the board. You made money. Leave me alone. We'll do it again next week. <laughs> Just leave me alone, you know? So that enabled me to, to be a musician. So I can remember like being at rehearsals and guys were fighting over 20 euros and I would go outside and make a phone call and make 900 euros in the phone call and they were fighting over 20 euros. Because I was working like this, I went to Austria and my plan was from June to be, I went to, I went on holiday to Italy for 10 days. I went up to Vienna and was going to stay there for two weeks. And during that time I went to Innsbruck to try to get us gigs, which I got, mm. I got seven gigs of a, of a, of a 13 gig tour and by physically going to places and calling them whatever but then while the old I was school there, we like the knocking on the door you know like this uh that was style, man and you know i mean I, I miss human contact you know and it's mm. just like i'm kind of old school because when i do my my promotion the younger people in the business are like wow it's too pushy it's too whatever so one i'm american americans and british their advertising is a little over the top but also i'm older so it's really just like not what's going on today, you know? But anyway, <laughs> while I was in Austria, I was going to go to the Edinburgh Fest. But I was still like working as an investment broker because it was really good money. I didn't have to do a lot of work and I could be a musician. I could be creative. The guy that I was working for got sick and I couldn't get my, if I made a trade, he has to sign off on it or I wouldn't get paid. So my income stopped. So I had to stay in Austria. This is a true story. I used to um, smoke a cigar after a big dinner and have a walk. So I was walking around the neighborhood and I wasn't planning on staying in Austria. And I had just committed a reason, you know, a fairly good amount of money to this guy to keep the flat that I had for the whole summer. And when I, I was wondering, did I make the right decision? And I swear to you, Craig, on my two daughters, I looked at the, t at the moment I said, did I make the right decision? I looked up. And there was a street sign, and the name of the street was Castelli Gasse. <laughs> and that's and and that's my name, my family name. So right. it sounds it sounds like I'm making this up, but I swear you cannot make this up. And now I have two beautiful daughters in Vienna. You know, for a time I was happier than I had ever been in my life, and so was their mother. But we're divorced. So after the divorce is how I came to Barcelona. And I love Barcelona. I've been here six years now. Culturally culinarily and socially mm -hmm. it's a lot closer to new york than it is to vienna in the sense of the way people behave and the way they act and and that's not a you know a judgment it's just an observation you know it's, it's, it's probably it's, a it's fact as well Robert, right you, you you were there a long time yeah the german-speaking world for for americans unless your heritage is from 
because I had a lot of friends when I was young who were German heritage and some spoke German. And then later in my work life, I met Austrians who left during the Second or First World War. Culturally, it's quite different. One thing I do want to say is both times I made the jump, I wasn't like in a relationship or anything. I had no support system. It's just me. I just did it with... <laughs> I did it with the three things I think people don't have anymore. Balls and personality. And before, you think, <laughs> and, before, and before you think I'm an arrogant ass, let me clarify what balls and personality are. Balls is a colloquial term for courage, you know, mm -hmm. and brave. Like you hear what's like chutzpah and all that, right? You know, the, it does, does, does many different, there's many different ways of describing it. But the point is to have the, the, the courage and the bravery to keep going. And when you fail, you don't give up. And people say, ah, oh, you should have done this. Shut up. I'm just going to keep going, you know? So that's the balls part. And the personality part is having the personality and the social skills to deal with musicians and on a business level, deal with what you need to do to get the job done. And, and compromise. These are two very different things. They're not always inclusive, right? These two, the personality part, the ego part, the talent part. And then the business part. Yeah. The problem with the, how should I say, the music model or the music business now is why a lot of musicians became business savvy was because they had to. Because there was a time, I'm just an artist, I don't, uh, business, uh, you're a plastic person, let somebody else do that. And they did it. And then what happened was that layer, if you will, got completely eliminated from the business. Unless you were like a top 10 pop star no one's going to throw money at you to do what you need to do. So without the money, you either are not going to do it or you're going to do it. And if you're going to do it, you got to learn how to do it. And to learn, you got to have the balls to keep going and the personality to, to make the right turns and to, to meet the right people or to know when to say what and to know when to keep your mouth shut. Because sometimes being an Italian-American from New York is more of a hindrance. <laughs> You know, but no, uh, other times it's a blessing in disguise, Robert. I'm sure sometimes it is, it opens a lot of doors, you know. Uh, kind of brief communication we had over email. You were you give us a little background into your family of drummers, or you come from a family of drummers? I do. Uh, to, so you're like the third generation, third generation, right? yeah. My father and his, his youngest brother were professionals in the union, uh, local. 802 is the New York City Musicians Union. And in the counties outside of, like, there's Westchester County and there's two counties on Long Island, they had their own. But most of the people, you know, basically in any big city, you're in the city and you have kids and you can't stay in the city anymore. <laughs> so you got to move outside the city. And all of those musicians were basically in the New York City musician plus the local one in their county, you know. So my father and my uncle Jimmy were lifetime members of the American Federation of Musicians in New York. And I didn't know that my Uncle Jimmy, who was two years younger than my bro my father, my father was nine of 10 and Uncle Jimmy was 10. And people say, why were families big so big back then? And all my cousins say, there was no television. <laughs> so anyway. It's true, own, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know? so, the winters are long, ten, They were a busy lot, those two, my grandparents. <laughs> So anyway, my father was still gigging when I was a kid. So I used to carry my father's drums. In fact, I always tell this 
because I didn't know it, but um, the Showtime Movie Network has a film called Candelabra about Liberace. Do you know who he was, or do you know the film? Yeah. Uh, the film's got Michael Douglas in it? Right, and Matt Damon. Uh, Matt Damon, right, yeah. And he plays a gay piano player. Yeah. And Matt Damon plays his lover. And what right. happens... But there's this huge age gap between them, right, if I remember the... the yes, the and, and the in the very beginning of the movie, Matt Damon is replacing the previous lover. And the previous lover is a guy that my father used to play in a trio with in Tarrytown, New York, named Vince Cardell. They changed his name in the film. So there's a scene in the film where Liberace goes up to the Hilton in Tarrytown, New York. It was a beautiful place right on the Hudson. It was like a, a one-story hotel. It didn't really have – it was like bungalows, you know? And then you, you'd open up to these terrace windows, and you're right out on the Hudson overlooking the Hudson. It was really beautiful. There's a scene where Liberace goes up there, and that's the first night they meet. And if they would have showed that trio in the film, that would have been my father on the drums. And I used to carry the drums. I was at the age, I have a brother who's four and a half years older than me and my younger brother who's a percussionist and drummer. Uh, my old, my older brother, Blaze, was a prodigious bongo player, but he never stayed with it. So um, my younger brother, my mother felt was too young to leave alone when she wanted to pick up my father from the gig at two o'clock in the morning. So I would go with my mother. My father couldn't see to drive a car, so my mother had to drive him everywhere. You know, I would help my father carry the equipment to the gig, load it in the car, unload it, help him set up, watch the first tune, leave with my mother, go to bed, two o'clock in the morning, she, and I, I'd come and she'd wake me up and I'd come and see my, to see what adults are like at two o'clock in the morning as a little kid, <laughs> you know, because well, it's a the, very different life uh, at that time in the morning, right? It's uh, well, you're a kid, you're, they're playing that first tune and it's just cocktail music and it's really quiet and everyone's on their best behavior. And the end of the night, like half of the clothes are off, the sweat's <laughs> on the floor, you know, everyone's buzzing. So how I started playing, I, I, I guess, I guess I was always attracted to music because music was always around the house. <laughs> and I don't know if I tried to consciously follow my father or not. That's still like a question mark. I don't know if it was just a natural thing for me or that I subconsciously wanted to be like my dad, you know? When my father got home at 2 o'clock in the morning, one of my, my younger brother and I, we shared a room, and my father used to put his drums in a storage space behind the clothes closet in our room. But you had to, like, do some things, move some things, and my father didn't want to do that at 2 o'clock in the morning because it would have woke us up. So I would wake up on a... On a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, he played Friday and Saturday night. Saturday, I couldn't touch the drums because he needed them Saturday night. But on Sunday, like I'd wake up and all the drums are on the floor, so I just like set them up, <laughs> and I and I would and that's how I started. He didn't have a day job until he got married, and when he got married. He worked for G. Shermer's, which was a music publishing company, what they call the music publishing house. Shermer being German and house, you know, that's mm. why that's that association there. So, and then it evolved into a musical instrument store and a record store. So that's how I got my, all of my record collection when I was a kid. We're talking about vinyl LPs. Uh, how I got my first guitar. And when I, I do, I, my second instrument is a guitar. I write all my, my music from the, 
guitar. And one reason that I contacted you was I'm a drummer who writes music for the band and there just aren't a lot of those people out there. So I'm really motivated to tell musicians. My father used to say, I'm not a drummer. I'm a musician who plays the drums. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love drums. I love chops. I love all that. But if it's not in the sweet spot, it's wasted energy. So my father really taught me how to be musical. From an educational point of view or a learning the drums point of view, if you want to call it that, how did all that kind of transpire? And were you always attracted to jazz primarily? Or because my father was a, a gigging musician. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you realize how big television and movie music was in the, in America in the 1960s. I mean, you think of the iconic themes like Mission Impossible and Kawaii Five-O, for mm. example. My dad what was his always... name? What was his name again, Robert, that wrote them? His name's on the tip of my tongue, man. Like Henry Mancini oh. was a famous one. For, for doing all those kind of scores. But he's got Lalo Frischen for... for Lalo, yes, right, exactly, yeah. Because yeah. he's Argentinian. My father used to say, when Buddy Rich came on The Tonight Show, for example, oh, you got to come check this out, come check this out. That's how I started listening to jazz. I never actively listened to jazz until I was in my in my teens. And, what, and how I started listening to jazz was, my first real influence on the drums was Mitch Mitchell... Jimi Hendrix's drummer. I and can although I'm, that, yeah. and I'm and I'm not that old where I was listening to that at that time. I was listening to it like 10 years later, you know. Even my father said, that guy's a jazz drummer. Because Nick Mitch Mitchell just had he had the jazz pedigree and he, he was a jazz drummer. He was. That was kind of like a jazzy influence. Then I believe I believe he was also a child actor at one point. Well, I guess when he I was heard a child, that. right? So <laughs> Yeah, apparently, like, you know, over there in England, they have different, like, show business families. You have, like, what do you call it, dance hall and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. and how I got into jazz was um, Hendrix, Third Stone from the Sun. That's a jazz kind of groove. And then in the mid, you know, the early 70s, mid 70s, okay, I was listening to it again, like, five, six, seven to ten years later. The Mahavishnu Orchestra and all the fusion bands. Mm. So then what I would do, I, I would always check the liner notes and who are the musicians, and then I would check, like, what else they did. So I was like, wow, they all played with Miles Davis. So then I went back and I checked out Miles Davis, and that's when I got into jazz. I went backwards to jazz. My mother always encouraged us to, like, to take books out of the library, get a library card. So I would always take out – I discovered Thelonious Monk from the Ossining Public Library, and it changed my world because Thelonious Monk, you can't predict – you know, jazz is a very predictable chord progressions and you can kind of hear where it's going to go. And if the solos, OK, they can go out. The harmonic movement, that's why they call them standards. They don't really change, mm. you know. And even though Monk is, is considered standards now, his music is totally unpredictable. And it sounds, imagine how that sounded in 1949. It might have sounded like something really from outer space, you know. So once I heard that really different stuff, then I was hooked on jazz, but I never stopped listening to, I prefer to say contemporary jazz rather than fusion or electric jazz. But I, I got into flamenco, uh, discovered Paco de Lucia, Paco Pena. I have, I have all the Andreas Segovia, although he's not really a flamenco guitar player. He's more of a classical guitar player, but he's Spanish. He was globally famous in the 70s. I have a, an unending curiosity for music, and that's how I got into jazz. But it didn't start with it didn't start with jazz. I mean, sorry to interrupt you. That that noise you might hear in the background is my old dog. He's coming backwards and forwards. So if you hear this kind of tick, 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 tick noise, it's him in the floor. 
from a learning point of view, uh, Robert, how did it how did it start for you? Did you pick up? You were saying earlier you picked up the drums as your dad was leaving things lying around, and you were kind of experimenting with them and playing playing around with them. But when did it get a bit serious for you in the sense that you were you were focused on it and it was you really got into it? Or were you playing guitar at the same time? No, no, no. I started playing drums when I was eight years old, and I started playing guitar when I was fourteen. And my and I always say, now that I'm 20, I feel like I'm getting pretty good. No, but anyway, um, <laughs> in the beginning, I was just taught by ear. I didn't, I didn't take any lessons till I was 16. But my father did show me the rudiments when I was a kid. He did teach me about brushes, but I never used that until I was like in my 20s. I was a, really a self-taught learner until, I mean, in high school, I took music theory. And, and uh, I didn't play in a, any high school bands. I played in, you know, bands with my friends, but I didn't play in like high school band, school band, big band, whatever. I didn't do any of that stuff. So I learned theory when I was young. Even the Casio keyboard hadn't come out yet. And the first one that came out was like $600. And that was just like not possible for my parents. Right, right, yeah. My mother was the last generation of women in America that didn't work. And my father was a almost blind musician so you can imagine what our income level was you know what i mean with three kids and 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 the parents it was not easy all the time so i didn't learn piano you know i learned piano in 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 uh in university but i never had a piano at home because if i did i would have learned it just like i did guitar and i i can play the guitar but i can't really play the piano i can be musical on the piano but i can't say that i can play the piano but i started really seriously learning you know in my early teens, it's just that the beginning was self-learning, and then I got proper teachers, then I went to university, and then I continued to study with great teachers like Ed Sof, Robbie Gonzalez, really great teachers. I was lucky that way. When you were in New York or before you moved to Europe, what was your uh, musical life like then? Uh, you, you were saying earlier you were working in the finance industry, let's call it that, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what was it, stockbroker? Yeah, well, that, that's basically the license that I had. Good. And I wanted to eventually get into like real estate or something. But yeah, I was what you would call a middle a middle class musician, you know, back then. We all and, go to uh, eat, man. So that's, well, that's the thing, you know. So what happened was I had a lot of friends until I got into my 40s. I stopped worrying about this thing. Are you a professional musician? Because you have to do something else to put food on the table. The musician's economic model of just even 20 years ago, let alone from when I started, is just, it's another planet now. It's another epoch. It just does not exist anymore. So there's no way. All the musicians I know that only make their money from music, they teach and they gig. And they make all their money from teaching and they gig because they have to gig because we're so my musical life in new york was when i was like yeah let's say 18 and so when i had to have a day job i was always gigging on weekends basically just playing covers i didn't play any jazz back then i, I played really mediocre covers at weddings and in bars or like some musical career to date, then, or, uh, or some kind of, or some kind of like town festival outside where they have a small gazebo and hmm. the local people are there, you know, like that kind of thing. 
It was never like any big thing. There were a couple of guys in my hometown that were playing in Europe. There's a great drummer from my hometown named Abe Speller, who used to play with Sonny Chirac, who was the one like musical person that got famous from my hometown that was born in my hometown because Peter Frampton lived in my hometown, but he wasn't born there. Right. Peter Falk lived in my hometown, but he wasn't born there. A lot of Howard people where you were growing up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a damn Petersboro. It was. Events. Events were where the money was, you know. And in an event, you'd play, you know, New York, New York, and you'd play the latest disco things, just like any event band does now. And, and, and there was a time when I was a musical snob where I frowned upon that, you know. And, and I thought, I don't have to prove that I'm a musician to play this crap. You know, I got to play art, you know. <laughs> and, and it's all music, you know. So I, I don't really have that attitude anymore. I just don't like to play any music without soul in, in a mediocre way. You know, if I'm going to play bad jazz standards and mediocre covers, at this point in my life, I'd rather stay home and watch Netflix. <laughs> you know? <laughs> a very philosophical point of view, Robert. But uh, I, I think at least you're a, a man of integrity or a man of your word then, right? So it's, it's more about the... I would bet money that that comes out in the music. And that's the point. Exactly, yeah. and I think the, these are maybe some of the characteristics that are n- not taken into consideration by people who don't play music. Maybe they don't; they're not interested in music or, or any kind of arts. But the, these are things that are some of them are not tangible, right? You can't. The only way you can just show it is through the music or through the art, whatever it is you're performing right. or producing. That's 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 how you show it. And for other people, but, but- they, it's how they measure it, you know. It's this kind of barometer, the scale of well, or you know, it's whatever, you know. But to well, you, it can mean everything. Yeah, you know, that's that's another thing. The perception of music has changed since, say, the '60s. You know, at the time, the music like um, it was a great quote that they, people float around on social media about Herbie Hancock. Why isn't jazz important today? And he said, because the people don't want to hear about the music. They want to hear about the celebrity behind the person who's doing the music. They're more interested in what clothes he wears, how much money he makes, and they're not listening to the music. And and another thing I want to say, because the musical landscape has changed, only certain people can survive in the music business. And those people are certain people whose families had more money than other people. So they don't have to struggle that the other people had. And you don't hear that in the music. For me, the grease and sweat and blood is missing because the people are playing it while our upper class twats, you know? And <laughs> and no, it's not like 100%, don't get me wrong, but, but that's there's a, really there's one of the element of that, right? There's a... Yeah, because what do you do? If you're 30 or 40 years old, you're not really making any money, you got to do your art and you got to prove it. You know, there's always, you know, the weird thing is my father was a musician. My mother was the wife of a musician whose brother was also a singer. And she, she was basically like, I don't want you to have the life that these people had. I want you to have money. And my father was like, music is music, 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 you know? So it was <laughs> through my whole life. There's always been this like thing, this voice over my shoulder you know, you got to make money and you got to do this and you got to do that. And yes, we all have to do that. But one thing I learned from the money business, because 
I'm from a family who was on social assistance at some times when I was a kid. And I got to handling one, two, three million dollars of people's money and making money off of that. And I'm surprised that people like that even let me in the room. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I got in the room without that. You know, music is life and everything that happens in life comes out in the music. So if your life is like all rose colored glasses, the music is not going to this music is only going to be interesting for a short time. You know what I mean? Some the music is kind of watered down because there isn't that struggle and that and that uh, fighting against the in my time it was the Vietnam War or whatever. Now, you know, Pink during during the Iraq War, Pink had a song. I don't know any of her music, but I respect her as an artist. She had a song, President, Mr. President, How Can You Sleep? And it was banned. It's banned like it was North Korea or fucking China in America. Uh, my friend and I so had a conversation whole- about this. A couple of podcasts ago, what was it called? The NCA or whatever it was called. Like the, it was these politicians' wives who got together and they basically put the stickers on the CD box, uh, the CD cases. You know, the advisory yeah, yeah. lyrics and all that kind of. It's all these pricks, right? Who are yeah, it was Tipper Gorg, right? Tipper Gorg, Al Gore's yes, wife. Right, Tipper Gorg. Right. They get nothing else Zappen. to do, man, you know? <laughs> yeah. right? So exactly. my friend and I were having a, nothing else to do. A shout out to Mark and I. Uh, we, we we did a podcast, not last one, one before, and we were talking about. Actually, we were talking about the Frank Zappa autobiography. I don't know if you've oh. read it. I haven't read I've it. I've read myself, it, but it's it's now on my to do. Uh, you haven't yeah, read list. it. I haven't. No. Okay. So, uh, do you know that there is a story that Frank Zappa ate shit live on stage? Have you ever heard that story? Uh, uh, murmurings of it, you know. Uh, yeah, through the because. They said like Late night conversations Alice Cooper in bit a bat's or... neck. Yeah. So there's another one that Alice Cooper bit a bat's neck and the and it bled on stage and whatever. So the beginning of Frank Zappa's autobiography was the closest I ever came to eating shit was at a Holiday Inn breakfast buffet on tour in the south of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> what an opening man. Well, he's definitely a poet, you know. No, he's a genius, man. He was a genius. Yeah, he totally was not only right. a genius in his music, he was a so- socially a genius as well. Put his money where his mouth is. He stood up to Congress and said, what you're doing is wrong. And I represent the people who are middle class who don't basically don't have a voice. How come there are no middle class people in Congress and the Senate? You know? You're all rich people, business people, taking care of each other, while we... Pay for you to continue to be rich. <laughs> you, know, you can't really, can't really argue with that, man. Like I'm preaching. Don't get, don't get me started. No, not at all, man. One of the other things I, I, I'd like to kind of bring up, Robert, is is it even relatively easy to compare these three musical backgrounds? Let's say the your your American life, your Austrian life, and now your life in Spain whether that's personal, musical, or all together, but what's there to kind of compare and contrast these? I do have to say, any any person in the area that they are, they know that, you know? They hear about what's outside that, but what they know is where they are, right? And America's a really big country because of television. You find out what's going on in California. That's six hours by plane, so that would be like five other countries in Europe, you know what I mean? 
I was lucky that I grew up when my mother used to take us to the beach. She always liked to have the radio on, and it was only AM back then. There was no FM. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. How, that's how old I am. Well, and, my first um, car only had the AM in it as well. And so, yeah, I remember those days well. You know. So, you know what it would be? It would be like right. Beatles, Mamas and Papas, Nat King Cole, Beethoven, James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could just like, it was just that. And, and other cultures and other cities don't have that. Like Jerry Seinfeld said one time, he did two of the comedians in cars getting coffee with Alec Baldwin, and they're both from Massapequa, Long Island. And he says, you don't realize how good the service is in New York until you leave New York. And it's absolutely true. I've been in restaurants in all over Europe and some in South America or, or at least Central America and Canada. And it's true. So the other thing about musically in New York, there was no musical prejudice. If you were a classical musician, maybe you would say, I don't like jazz. But that only happened from like this... 65 to 70, 75, 80. After that, the classical musicians were into jazz. The jazz musicians were into classical music. And there was no barrier. That's why I, I, I equate um, jazz purists with religious fundamentalists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I you do. say that, not me. <laughs> but it's, it's just so absolutely outrageously ridiculous. It's just music. Shut the fuck up and play or don't say anything. That's it. And you can play or you can. There we go. And exactly. Do you think you listen, that a lot of, do you think that? No, and if you listen, the music will tell you what to do. So if you're playing Celtic music, you're not going to do a funk beat. If you're playing <laughs> Latin music, you're not going to play a blues shuffle. You have to intuitively. And that's it. Shut up and play. <laughs> the music's bigger than you. You can never tell the music what to do. It's the other way around. So what do you time. play? I see your guitar behind there. What oh, do you yeah, play? I'm, I'm also a drummer who plays guitar at home. I, I like to just. What's your first instrument? Drums or guitar? Uh, drums. Me too. So I'm a drummer who played, started to play the guitar. Great. We're kindred spirits. Man, you know, so. Drummers are a bit of a unique bunch. They're like the goalkeeper or goaltenders in those sports with that position. Yes. Like we're, we're all a bit quirky and a bit. It's hard for some other, other of our team members to appreciate our. Right. Points, you know? <laughs> to, play, to play in the sandbox, you know, they can't yeah, play yeah. together. We have to show them. That's our job. And so that's why I think music is really important to be in schools because they, they really, these social media posts have put the, the wording of why music is important. It teaches social skills. You can't have an ego. You can't be the star. You have to support the people in the band. You have to make them feel comfortable. And you have to be confident and not be shy when it's your time to play. So all of those are social skills. And and whether you go on to play music or not, when you go out into society, you'll be a better person because of that. You know? Exactly. I, I think for people like myself who played it as a hobby, right? So we'd play in bar bands or we did some original stuff or all that kind of stuff. You know, we never, we, you get paid sometimes, sometimes you don't. But, it's, but we, all sorts of experiences most of which great and uh, great people I met along the way. But, here's the but, I always found it to be really important to have that connection with the band, bandmates, let's use the word mates, because that's really what it is, you know, to have like, to enjoy spending the time 
with the people when you're practicing, for example. You've had a long day at work, you go meet the rehearsal room, everyone's a bit tired on a Tuesday night and you're a bit grumpy and you're like, oh, fuck, here we go, right? You know, it's like, do we have to play this yeah. again? And then then after maybe 20 minutes, the kind of mood lifts a little bit, then you're like, all right, and then we get the groove on, you're like, all right, okay, here we go, everything's great again, you know, it's... Yeah. It's a bit. It's a bit like a dysfunctional family, you know. You have your ups and your downs, but no, for sure. That, no, music is. A, it's an emotional thing. So when you're in that situation, sometimes you get a little emotional, and you might yell at your bandmate, whatever. But it's still a, a camaraderie thing, you know. And for me, that's right. what one of the main things that I always took out of. I always liked that aspect of it. Like you, you know, you you get to do something you like with people you like as well. That's like the the win-win, you know, and that's like the icing on the cake. Right. And the, and it's even better when you get to do what you love with people you love. What I wanted to do was from Germany, go to like the Netherlands, Belgium. I have a lot of contacts, but you know, like if you can't, if there's nobody paying subsidy, the travel costs just eat up any possibility of, this is why the, the musical landscape has changed that way because in the past the artists had backing by record labels or managers or whoever, and now that you know the average jazz There's a certain what kind of allocation pays. towards this, like for travel costs or for arranging yeah. gigs, you know that kind of networking aspect of things. Yeah, I've got I've gotten subsidy for three tours in the past, four tours, and some of it came from the Austrian Cultural Forum, which I have to really thank Austria for because I was an Austrian resident, and because I was a resident. The Austrian Cultural Forum in London, they gave me money and let me stay in their digs. And they're in Knightsbridge. Do you know London? Nice. Knightsbridge is really yeah. posh. It's really yes, posh. It's, it's where Harris is. But my flight was a little bit late. And the last people at the Austrian Cultural Forum were leaving at like 6 p.m. And my flight came in at 8. So I, so I messaged all my musician friends. Do you, do you know anyone in Knightsbridge? And they were like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> some kind of royal dude or whatever, right? Or uh, some some member of the aristocracy or a Russian billionaire oligarch type. But other, other than that, no. Funnily enough, you know, that's a small world, man. Barcelona, your home now, uh, has been your home now for, you mentioned earlier, three or four years, was it? Six. Six, excuse me. So Six. you've had the... Uh, the kind of COVID break in between, did that affect your, let, let's not talk personally, you know, I don't mean in a financial way, but did it, did it affect you uh, personally in the sense of you, you know, not being able to play and obviously support yourself fully through this form of income? Well, Maybe not your entire source of income, but this was so, a, a hurdle, I imagine, for you. Obviously, it killed gigging. This is how I met Nancy Ruth. During this time, I got involved with, which I found on closed Facebook and social media groups, people in the industry and really a high levels like um, Quincy Jones's television show, the guy who does that in Paris, the owner of Act Records in Germany, uh, record owner, record label owners in Norway, people in Brazil. We would Zoom and be like, is it the apocalypse? You know, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know? So how it affected me was, as a drummer, I didn't touch my instrument for three months. But I've been playing so long that basically I just had to warm up for a couple of days, and I was basically right back to where I was. Because when you've been playing an instrument so long, 
whatever you can think of mentally, it takes you shorter time to physically articulate it. If you're out of practice or you're playing really un unusual music, the physical movement takes a long time to practice and stay yeah. in your muscular memory. might stay in your memory and your mind, but to actually play it, the physicality of it is, is, is hard. COVID gave us a lot of time to practice, gave me a lot of time to practice guitar, write music. I was supposed to visit my daughter and it got canceled. I have two daughters in Vienna and my daughter Allegra, I wrote a song for her called Allegra Can Dance, but it was originally a Brazilian choro. is a mixture of like classical music, Dixieland and jazz because it has a lot of notes. It's got the Brazilian rhythm, like a, and a lot of notes. And then the next phrase is a lot of notes. So that's kind of like ragtime, that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I was originally going to write, my original idea for Allegra Can Dance was a Brazilian choro. And my daughter said, because we were coming out of lockdown and you could actually travel, I had a date to see them. And I was going to see them in one week. And I said, Ali, I'm almost finished with your, talk, with your song. And she says, really, Papa? I said, yeah, it's a Brazilian charter. She says, no, Papa, I want a rap song. And I want it when you come. And it was one week before I was going to go. So I had to, like, write lyrics right, for, the first time, <laughs> for the first time since I was a teenager. So lockdown enabled me to be able to just do anything I wanted to do. But on the economic side and on the playing side as a drummer, it crushed me, you know, it totally crushed mm -hmm. me. But through all of these zoom meetings, I met amazing people like Nancy Ruth and promoters in other countries and musicians who I've met physically in England and here, and we are all supporting each other. So in a sense, it, uh, it really made clear to the world how important live music is to society. But what the one thing that was bad is the conditions were already bad for musicians. And then COVID hit and there were no gigs. Then we come out of the COVID and they say, well, we can give you the gigs, but we're going to give you the same shitty conditions we gave you five years ago. It's like we can't. It's Thanks. the only <laughs> industry. It's the only industry where your wages have not gone up. A supermarket worker's wages have gone up in 20 years, like five, six times. Musicians, not. And that's like Dream ridiculous. Only. Yeah. And we, we provide the joy. We provide the soundtrack of your life. You don't even know what we give to you and you're giving us disrespect. You know, it's terrible. <laughs> That's the, the other side of the coin, right, that might not be apparent to those who are not directly involved in the, the let's call it, the entertainment business. Music business primarily, right? There's a lot of uh, shittiness going on, right? There's just, uh, as you yeah. were saying there, Robert, it's uh, universal. But you were asking me earlier where, where I am. So I'm in, I've been in Dortmund for four years uh, before that. So this is going back to 2017. I was in Scotland for about nine or ten months figuring out what to do next. But if I go uh, back again, I, I lived in South Korea from 2000 to 2017. And uh, yeah, I can... Years. 17 years, man. Most of them were not even in jail. So there we go. How's that? So that's, not, that's pretty <laughs> but impressive. South Korea is not like North Korea, so... Yeah. No, no. 
No, they have. But wait, so do you speak Korean? You had to have some level of Korean to be able to survive that long in the country, no? Or do do a lot of people speak English? um, Younger generation, a bit. Older generation, no. No, right. And then there's a certain kind of part of society that's maybe been uh, educated in the United States or they had family who emigrated there. Uh, this type of thing, but mm, for for the most part, it's a lot of Korean going on. But my point was uh, to to get a digress. My point was, yeah, the, the Korean uh, venues will shaft you as well, right? So it's definitely a universal thing about getting uh, yeah into the stick. This has also come up a lot of times in like podcasts and interviews and whatever that I don't understand the business model and the business mentality of the club owners, because a lot of times as a musician, they ask me for promo. I send them the promo and how to present it and they don't do it. And then if they don't like the numbers in the club, they give you attitude. If they're going to do that every night to musicians, when I was younger, you had lots of bands had three to five nights, whether you were local or a traveling musician. And what did that do? The first night, if you didn't already have a buzz, you might not have a big audience. But if you were good, the buzz would go around the neighborhood and people would more people would come each day. So what happened is, in the end of the five days, the musicians won, the club won, and the audience won. And now it's like, I need every little cent today, and tomorrow I'm going to squeeze the same thing out of the next act. Wouldn't it make more sense to build a momentum as a business model? This is what you're dealing with, right? I mean, me less so much now, but you're doing it more on a, a permanent basis. What are your plans for the future, Robert? If we can talk a little in a since well, I've been I, teaching all day in a little week, let's talk. Let's talk future tides for for a while. Then, you know? <laughs> well, let's I already see how have, we can go. I already have some gigs booked in in London for 2023 so since 2023 i've been playing mostly since i came to europe i when i lived in vienna i played in austria and england in the uk when i came to spain now i'm playing in spain austria and the uk so i I tour every year in england so i already have gigs booked but as i had said i want to go to the north so before the before the lockdown in 2019 when i put out my last release my plan was to do what I normally do in England, but play in Austria and then go to Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, and try to you know set up the gigs. I, I, mm. I have some people who can help me and some people who most of the time I have to do it by myself. But because of COVID, that wasn't possible. And also what I found out about 90% of the Netherlands clubs is they only support Netherlands musicians. You know, which in a sense, one way I can respect that, but another way, I come from a multicultural international kind of country. So it's just like second nature for me to think, oh, well, we'll have the Chinese next week. You know, they don't do that in other countries. They don't do that. (laughs) I have to live with that, you know. But my plans are I have about three gigs and one workshop for March of 2023. But I want to do a 10, I want to do minimum 10 day tour. What will probably happen is those 10 dates will get spread over a couple of months, and that will be only in England. And I have, I was bumped at Porgy and Bess in Vienna for Charles Lloyd, the saxophone player. And 
in 2019. And I'm like, what? You bumped me for Charles Lloyd? No, no. <laughs> just a joke. Just a joke. So um, so Christoph at, at Porgy owes me a gig, and we've been trying. I have several problems being a drummer, band leader, and an international musician. I record in one country, and if I go to another country, and it's financially not possible to bring the guys who recorded that music, I have to have another band in another country. So I've been lucky enough that I've been playing long enough in England that I've had two bands. And the guys I have now, Francesco Locastro, Bruno Diamba, Johnny Wickham, they are just, I am so lucky that I have people like this to play my music. The second thing is, I'm a drummer and I write the music, so I don't play the lead instrument. So what is the identity of the band? Do you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's it's difficult it's difficult sometimes, and that's why I want the compositions to be the identity of the band. So and that's why I sell the compositions to the promoters in Europe. And regardless, because Michael Brecker and Miles Davis and everybody, when they came to Europe, they did the same thing. If financially it wasn't worth it, they got a what my fa- in my father's days it was called a pickup band. My father actually played with really high profile people like. Tommy Dorsey and people like that, or mm. he didn't play with Duke Ellington, but Duke Ellington would come to New York with his with Billy Strayhorn and one or two of the band members, and that was all they could afford to move. The rest they had to get in the town. So imagine being the musician to say, here are 14 charts, <laughs> learn the music. But that's what I love about jazz. Jazz no has YouTube in those days, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's where the balls and personality thing come in. You got to have the balls to just keep going and the personality to make your way through. Learn what you got to learn. Be polite when you have to be polite. Say, I disagree. It's, today, it's really difficult to disagree. It's like this big fucking thing. If you disagree, we hate each other. It's, you know, I just disagree. You know what I mean? Yeah, you have to learn how to say, I disagree without starting a war. If only people ever learned that lesson, <laughs> Robert. Eh? You know? Yeah, I wonder. Pr- uh, primarily in Barcelona, the things literally metaphorically heat up a bit in the summer. You get more gigs oh, and yeah. festivals and things like that. You know, just yeah, totally. Before the lockdown, I had like seven running projects. I had um, I had a weekly organ trio gig, a bi-weekly funk organ trio gig. I had a jazz organ trio gig, a funk organ trio gig. Two piano trios, my boom band, my friend Oscar Nero's band, and we have an event band called Night Train. We were doing all kinds of stuff from clubs to events to small little festival things. After COVID, now it's opened up. I had the pleasure to play down in Andalusia in September for the first time. And that's like six hours on the train from Barcelona. It's quite far away. And I play with great musicians, uh, Jan Yorutia, who's from Basque Country. And he's lived in different parts of the world. He's an amazing musician. Juan Massana, he's from Barcelona, but in Malaga for like 25 years. And we played at Clarence Jazz, which is a pretty well-known club down there. And Yeah, it's great. It's, it's So, yes, to answer your question, things heated up. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping for in 2023. Uh, where should we start? How about a guilty pleasure then, right? This could be uh, a musical guilty pleasure. I mean, other fetishes are allowed, but let's, let's stick to the music. Okay, okay. Even though, even though I do play the guitar, 
I haven't played gigs on the guitar in a long since I lived in Vienna. But I like to play the guitar extremely loud. Like I live I live on a property with a recording studio. One of my best friends has the main house and I have like a little cottage. And one day they were up at the studio and I was playing the guitar and they called me. And, and I was like, okay, San Cugat is a town that's two train stations away from where we are. And you have to walk 10 minutes to the train station. So I said, wow, you can hear it up at the studio? And he says, I think they can fucking hear it in San Cugat. <laughs> and another, another time my brother, my brother came home when I was 14 years old. I was playing really loud guitar out of really bad equipment and my and my <laughs> what a heady it, mix right there yeah <laughs> literally like half a mile away you know and my brother came home and he kicked in the door and he's like will you turn down that shit you sound like you're fucking on acid <laughs> you know <laughs> so that's my guilty pleasure playing the guitar not loud extremely hendrix jet engine loud <laughs> the, the, yeah. the ear bleeding loud uh, capacity. Uh, musically speaking, is there a guilty pleasure that you you quite enjoy from time to time? I'm a divorced father, and I'm going through a hard time because I don't see my girls. So, Iggy Pop, "Cry for Love." I turn it oh, up really? really loud. I get I get I get a buzz on, and I sing it really loud. Uh, old David Bowie, like uh, Golden Years and that kind of stuff, where he's singing in four octaves. <laughs> you know, I actually, I, I, when in high school, I used to sing in rock and roll bands, but I find that singing is it resonates through the body. So I, 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 I actively try to sing on a regular basis, not to sing, but to resonate this poison through my body and out of my body. You know what I mean? And I do that with Iggy Pop and and I'm afraid of Americans, David Bowie, you know, like this oh, kind man. of stuff. You know? Class. Have you have you ever tried the just as a kind of side note here, Robert, have you have you ever tried the singing and drumming drumming and singing at the same time, you know, whether that's like uh I've done uh, it many times in bands and for drummers who are listening, they may know this book called The New Breed. Gary Chester you might not know who Hal Blaine is. Hal Blaine is the most recorded drummer in history. Indeed, from... Uh, the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew, thank you. Right, Right, and 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 Gary Chester is like the East Coast um, Hal Secret Blaine. Secret Man and all that, and all those other many, 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 many tunes. Yeah, so sometimes... Uh, Gary Chester has this book where you actually have to sing. You sing the quarter note, and each of your limbs... Is playing a different rhythmic pattern. And then you go from to play the quarter note and you have to sing the written phrase. So singing and drumming is really important for the coordination because it's already really hard. When you play drums, most of the time you're playing three things, snare, bass, drum, hi-hat, or cymbal. But you can be playing four independent rhythms. And then singing on top of that. And how about harmonizing on top of that? <laughs> I used to play with this guy. This is actually how I met my ex-wife. I used to play with this uh, Australian guy in Irish pubs. And he had a, a MIDI guitar where there were bass notes in the first two, in the E and A string. And I would play a cajon with a shaker. And with my hand, it, it sounded like a drum set. So I'd be like, boom, chikataka, boom, boom, gak, whatever. And if I got tired, I'd have to change 
the shaker hand. So I'm playing, I'm playing the bass notes and snare with my right hand. Boom, crack, boom, boom, crack. While I'm going chicka 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 with the other hand, and then in the middle of the song, while I'm singing, I have to change hands and not drop a beat. <laughs> this this was a great, amazing exercise for coordination. And for resonating poison out of your body. <laughs> yeah. Excellent stuff, man. Uh, tell us a, an artist or maybe even a genre, Robert, that you just don't get. I thought about this for a long time. When I was a kid, one of my heroes was Ginger Baker. But Ginger Baker was not a good drummer. And when I got to more into drumming, I realized the hype was too much. I think if I say that a particular band is not is overhyped, it's kind of disrespectful even if it's accurate, because it's 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 one thing to tell your friends intimately, I don't think, I think this is bullshit, but to like say that on a platform where thousands of people can potentially hear that. For example, Medeski Martin and Wood, this groove thing, it's like, okay, I could have done that when I was 14 years old for 10 minutes. We'd smoke a joint and fucking play 10 minutes and blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay, <laughs> this is not like anything, you know, but they're really big. They yeah. brought it to a level. They're very successful and good for them. You know, I'm very happy for them. Have so, you seen the Ginger yeah. Baker documentary? Yes, I love it, man. <laughs> yeah. And it, somebody, it opens with him smacking the guy in the mouth, right? You, the the director. You read his autobiography. No, I'm a bit like you. I'm not really a Ginger his Baker. His autobiography man. is basically how I cop drugs while I live, live the rest of my life. Like the rest of his life is secondary to him copying drug. And that's how bad it was with him. And that's why he was a miserable fuck. Because he was he either Jonesing for the, that's why, because he's he was either Jonesing for the drug or hung over and in a bad mood. Imagine telling your son, you're a shit drummer, you'll never be any good. What fucking parent would talk to their child like that, you know? Was it called the fabulous Mr. Baker? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's just he's just such a, a dick, right? You know, so totally. And a slight kind of tangent, though, but on a, on a similar kind of theme for for me as drummers, I think you you summed it up quite well. You don't mean this in a kind of personal, direct thing. Not that anyone famous would might be right. here for that matter. But I never really got the hype behind Keith Moon. So people will ask people oh. who are not drummer Keith Moon. Yeah. People will say, or like, you know, they'll name three drummers that they've heard of, right? So one will be Bonham, one will be Keith Moon, and one might be Ginger Baker, just for an example, right? Definitely not a holy trinity there, but... Yeah, yeah, in England, definitely. There's, there's, yeah. there's some good in there somewhere, right? Bonham, obviously. All but, my uh, heroes when I was a kid. Oh. Yeah, totally, man. He seemed like a good guy as well, right? A little, a little uh, adventurous in his uh, lifestyle choices, shall we say? <laughs> but, you know... Uh, <laughs> A phenomenal drummer all the same, right? Just uh, sadly missed him. What could have been? But Keith Moon, man, I just, he always also seemed a bit like a dick as well. I don't know whether it was just his persona or he was hyperactive or lots of drugs or a well, combination of all those another, things. I just. Another thing is, Craig, think about it. We're talking about this from the perspective of our age. Mm. Imagine being an 18 to 22 year old guy from some place that nobody ever heard of, and all of a sudden you have all this notoriety thrown in front of you, how do you handle that? A lot of people go off the rails, and that's pretty much what they did. Yeah. 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 I, I think even from a kind of musical point of view, I never really enjoyed Keith Moon's played very much either. It was very perfunctory or just a bit. It filled the gap for what the songs were, right? The Who at that time. 
But it was it all seemed a bit much of a muchness. There never seemed to be much variety or any difference in his playing. It always just seemed to be okay. Well, here's some more of the actually, same. Actually, when you say that, when you say that, that's very accurate. But at the time, it was slightly innovative. You know, uh, it was different. About- right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, at the time, no one else was doing that, or, or like thing, that for uh, that matter. Ginger Baker at that time, he was in, in the Georgie fame and the Blue Flames. With mm. He played with, with Jack Bruce and John McLaughlin. And John McLaughlin then went off to be this jazz icon. At the time, though, they were like 5% of what was going on was what they were doing. So that's what made them special. It wasn't necessarily their musical talent or their musical ability. And, and I think they had that look as well, right? That particular look of London at the in the 60s at that time, that if you want to call it the mod look, right? But that's, they had the whole thing. Yeah. I still wear those clothes, man. The women in my life, <laughs> the women in my life for the last 30 years, they, they just, they destroy me with these dark the things like, you're going to go out like that, or you're worse than a woman or whatever. And, and all of this because I wanted to wear those same clothes that those guys were wearing. <laughs> <laughs> it never really goes out of fashion, but it always comes back round again. You just have to yeah. wait sometimes a bit longer than others. Tell us about yeah. a favorite venue you've either, uh, Play that, I'm sure of which there are many, Robert, or some a venue where you've uh, you've seen someone perform. Well, because I've lived in a couple of different cities now, I have to say in New York, although it has many truly iconic venues, uh, I liked the bottom line is no longer in existence because the bottom line was not a club for any particular type of music. The Village Vanguard was jazz. It's iconic club, Birdland Jazz, the Knitting Factory, this out, you know, this out stuff. And the Knitting Factory, the first Knitting Factory was a shithole where you might, you would go in there and you'd be like, God, am I going to get lice by the time I get out of here? You know what I mean? (laughs) You know? The walls are moving, yeah. Yeah, it was really. So the the bottom line, I'd seen Tower of Power there. I've seen John McLaughlin there. I've seen... So many different styles of music. So that's a New York venue. If I would say that was my fir- favorite venue to to see artists at. To play at in Europe, my favorite venues are probably Porgy and Vess in Vienna. It's, an, it's a great concert hall because it's, it's bigger than a jazz club, but smaller than a really big concert hall. It's about 250 capacity. And the, and the layout is... It's just a great, for the type of music that I play, it's a great venue and a great audience. They have amazing equipment. They treat the musicians really well, and the audience is really good. In, um, in London, Ronnie Scott's is an iconic place, and I got to play Ronnie Scott's late show in June, in September, rather. And, and it, after Tree Like Earth, one of my percussion heroes, and it was just a great night. The layout of the club is, has say, a throwback to the 50s where the entertainment was the most important thing. You know, the layout of the club is that even though it's set with a lot of people, the stage is the most important thing. That would be my favorite venue to see people and play at in Europe, I would say. Excellent, man. Is there... Next question. See, I'm trying not to look at my paper. I'm doing it all professionally, right? <laughs> my brain tells us somewhat like in this time of, of the evening. Uh, there's two questions left. I've got that much done. What's your go-to karaoke song if you're in the mood for it? Or is this something that you've, uh, you have you dabble no, with from time to time? You know? No, I, do, I have done karaoke you know, on holiday or with friends. But one time in New York, man, in Midtown, when I was into like partying till outrageous 
hours of the morning. A, a woman that I barely know introduced me to this karaoke place. If you went by during the day, it would just be like a, a, a cast iron door. It would look like nothing with graffiti on it and dogs pee on it, and it looks like nothing. You open the door, and you go in. It's a three-floor cavernous club, all Japanese. The client was 80% Japanese clientele, and they had the literal things, the booth where you push the button and the light goes on and you do the yeah. karaoke. And I actually got up, you know, you get to pick your songs. I went to karaoke, you could do anything. But I've listened to so much pop music from, say, Brazil and England. Like, do you know Nitin Sony, for example? I don't know. Do you know Nitin Sony is a, what you call, over, what they call over there, British Asian. But he's an iconic music composer. And his music is very eclectic. Like, his, his music will go from, like, Indian traditional music with jungle underneath or German bass underneath to a completely different style, like funk on the same record. And you don't see that very much. So sometimes karaoke, you're kind of limited to what you can pick. But <laughs> New York, <laughs> my way is always a great tune to play. It's very motivational, you know? <laughs> <laughs> of course, if you do, if you do it the, the Sid Vicious way or, the, of course, the original, the classic Frank version, if you like, you know? Is there someone we should be listening to then, Robert? This is this was the last question. I'd have. Tell us someone who's maybe not on our radar per se, and you would like to uh, bring it to well, since our attention. I, since I live in, I've lived in a few different places. And since you had Nancy Ruth on, I have to say, I met Nancy, and then I listened to her music. And she is a really completely modern musician. She plays jazz, but she's not a jazz purist. And she has absorbed the culture of where she is. And the music that she plays and the level that she plays for me is phenomenal. And I'm not just saying that because she's my friend and she's how I got, was introduced to you. She really is one of the top, say, five people I've heard in the last five years that I was like, wow. So that's one. There's a great trumpet player in Spain from Valencia. His name is David Pastor. And he plays everything from classical music to his own bands. Let's see. In Austria, there's a great Brazilian piano player named Wagner Wesley, who's moving, the, you know, blending the cultures. Mm -hmm. And the guys I play with in England, and I'm not just trying to make this about me, but Bruno D'Ambra, Francesco La Castra, they're Italian guys who have been in London for a long time, and they have quite a reputation now. But they're really good composers and really good players. And they're like, the, you know, the new guys. And this is the thing, like, if you haven't played with Miles Davis or you haven't played with Bruce Springsteen, how do people learn about you, you know? Basically, the, the, what you're playing has to resonate with the crowd. People say that's really good, but a big radio station or magazine doesn't pick it up. People are not going to hear it. So that's why I'm saying think locally. But listen globally and support the people in your area, but take the inspiration from all over the world because this music is just music for everybody, everywhere. Sure. You know? But that's what I would say. I mean, I, I could honestly, I could name about 20 or 30 musicians that I've been playing with, but I don't, I don't want to make it about me. But I find those people that I mentioned extra special in what they do. You know? We'll stick some of these links in the in the show notes for the for the podcast. 
I have one last question. I had to prepare in the style of Colombo, I get one more thing, right? So it was kind of <laughs> we about Peter Falk earlier, thing, you know. One more thing, thing. Yeah. Since, since we're both uh, kindred spirits in a, uh, of the drum fraternity, uh, Robert, do you, do you, do you have such a thing as a dream kit? Is there is there you know something that you have you've had? Your no, I don't, Greg. I think, have uh, three. I have three dream kits. Oh, look at you! I have a <laughs> I have a jazz. I have a jazz kit because you need a special light sound, high tune toms. Mm. Then I have the kit that can do anything if I'm on the road or I'm playing. And it's like my music goes from swing to electric funk to world music. And I need a kit that can do that. You it's know? versatile enough to, to give you those sounds. Yeah. And, to, to call and, the other kit, and the other kit is the one that's always packed that when you have the gig, you don't have to take anything apart. You just pick up the kit. <laughs> You know, it's already packed. <laughs> it's the, the to go version. Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there a manufacturer you prefer to play with, or are you quite open to different Pearl, Tama, Ludwig? And I endorse the sticks, but I've had my last two kits were Tama and Yamaha. And, you know, without getting into. When I play in England, the British drum company, they make amazing drums. I have yeah, they, they've they just signed a thing with uh, Nico McBrain. He's their yeah. latest big indoor C. And as you know, the Iron Maiden kit's enormous, amazing. right? Yeah, the, newer, the newer cats, I would say they're at the top. But I love I love Yamaha and Tama. And Yamaha Pearl. makes some great stuff, man, yeah. Uh, it's uh, yeah. So there we go. There's a, a short nerdy drum question for for just maybe for you and I's pleasure, right? <laughs> you know, any, any other drum nerds who are listening. Yeah, Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thanks for taking the time out of your night to uh, to share your stories with me and with everyone else, man. I really appreciate it. You're a gentleman. Pleasure's all mine, man. No, thank you very much, and, and I I do have to say thanks for doing what you do because you give a voice to people who might not have been heard. So thanks for that. Yeah? Right on, man. Cheers. You can follow Can't Find My Way Home on Instagram at can't.findmywayhome on Facebook at expatmusicpod and of course you can find us on Spotify, Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts from, you'll find us there. Until the next one, this is Greg saying cheers. Cheers.